When you take the old Roman road between the towns of Bethune and Lons in northern France, you cross over the Luce battlefields from 1915, and as you top a rise, there on your left is a cemetery surrounded by high walls. Here, the missing of Luce, the Luce Memorial. We're standing on a viewing platform overlooking a British cemetery in northern France. Behind us is a main road, a busy road, that runs from the town of Bethune across to the town of Lens. It's an old Roman road that cuts right across this part of the old front line, a battlefield most closely associated with 1915. We're right in the heart of where the Battle of Luz was fought that year, in September and October. The cemetery beneath us is Dud Corner Cemetery, so named because there was a German defensive position here, a redoubt, the Lenz Road redoubt, which it was said that in front of it was a large number of unexploded Dud shells, and so it was Dud Corner Cemetery. We'll return to the cemetery itself another day, but it's the walls of the cemetery that we're interested in, not just walls that delineate the cemetery on the landscape. These are memorials, memorials to the missing. This is the Luz Memorial. And that's what we're going to look at. But before we get to the point where we begin our walk along some of those panels of the Luz Memorial and discuss some of the stories of the men who are commemorated here, what can we see from where we are? Well, this is an unusual feature that we're on, this viewing platform in a cemetery. It was built as part of the design of the cemetery in the 1920s to allow visitors to come up the steps, the Portland Stone steps, to stand up here and look out across this essentially flat landscape where the Battle of Luz was fought in 1915. We can see how the battlefield here is devoid of cover which was a great factor in the casualties that were suffered here in 1915 and we can see pretty much all of the battlefield from here. If we look behind us we're close to Maroc, Cité Maroc, one of the mining villages here. This is a mining area of northern France, the richest coal seam in this area of France and a coal mining industry that no longer exists today. But we see here and there on this landscape the reminders of it, bits of the old lifting gear from the colliery, from the pit heads, and also the slag heaps, the discarded coal that stand today like monoliths as a, as a memorial, really, to the industry that once dominated this part of France. Two large slag heaps can be seen just behind us to our rights, and they sit on the site of what the British called the double crassier. It looked very different in 1915 for, for the whole of the war, really. It was a flattened-off slag heap with a railway line running across the top of it. We discussed it a little bit in a walk that we did in one of the podcasts in the 47th London Division sector. That's the area where they fought in the opening stage of the Battle of Luz and where there was a, a diversionary attack there involving the King's Royal Rifle Corps and the Royal Sussex on the 30th of June 1916. So we can see that, and then we swing round and look to the north. We're looking basically right up across the battlefield where the attacks went in on the 25th of September 1915, the first day of the Battle of Luz. One witness here called it unfavourable ground, and, and when you look at this battlefield, you can see it's not the best place to attack. This was a tipping point in the war in some respects because it was the first point in which large numbers of men from Kitchener's army were used in a big battle. We tend to think that was the Somme, but the Battle of Luz was the first occurrence in which large numbers of new army, Kitchener's army units that had been raised in 1914, went into battle. 
It was also an operation that saw an increased use of artillery. The Shell Scandal of 1915, which at one point had seen British guns on the Western Front rationed to the number of shells they could fire each day, this wasn't a problem at the Battle of Luz. There was a massive amount of artillery, and it was the first demonstration that if you just chuck shells at the enemy, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll all be wiped out. The power of the artillery was immense. This was something that we would see both here at Luz and on the Somme the following year, but it needed to be used intelligently, and that was something that was developed over the course of the next year. It was also a point in which the British Army used gas, poison gas, for the first time. So this was a move away from the earlier battles of the war, in which both sides were struggling to come to terms what trench warfare was all about. But from the British perspective, it was a move, an increasing move, to what you could describe as total war, where any and every weapon was justified on the battlefield, whether that's small arms, rifles and machine guns, to the massive amount of heavy guns that could be used, and now here at Luz for the first time, poison gas. Luz saw this intense period of fighting in September and October 1915, and almost every part of the landscape that we can see from up here was touched by that, but it was a short-lived battle. And after the Battle of Luz, when it closed in October 1915, this became a quiet sector of the Western Front in which units were rotated. If we look to our northeast from here, we're looking up towards the village of Hullock, and in that area, in late 1915 on into the spring of 1916, the 16th Irish Division served in that sector. They were one of the new army divisions raised in Ireland in 1914, all volunteers, largely from southern Irish regiments, and then brought over here to acclimatise the trench warfare. They came under quite a lot of gas attacks at Hullock in that spring of 1916. There was mining activity there, and a lot of their men were used as tunnellers on this part of the front before they shipped up and moved down to the Somme to take part in the fighting at uh, Jeanchy and Guillemont in September of uh, 1916. So during those four years of the war, this landscape saw the rotation of many, many units of the British and Commonwealth forces through here. The Canadians came here in the summer of 1917 in between their victory at Vimy and their fighting at Passchendaele in the autumn and they took part in an operation against Hill 70, the rising ground we can see just beyond Lou's village. So it was an area of intense activity but long periods of static trench warfare as well and the memorial that commemorates the missing from this sector from September 1915 with the opening day of the Battle of Luz on the 25th of September through to the end of the war reflects that. So a large proportion of men commemorated here are from that 1915 battle but not only that battle as we discover as we walk around the memorial. We'll go down the steps now to begin our walk but as we do so we'll pause for a minute just to think about how these memorials to the missing came into being. At the end of the Great War, on most battlefields, at least 50% of the dead did not have a known grave. They were either buried as unknown soldiers when the battlefield clearance parties went in and began to clear the battlefields and found dead buried during the war, either by shell fire or buried in shell craters or impromptu graves on the battlefield. They discovered that a large number of these men were unidentifiable. So what to do with the missing of the Great War? And a number of ideas have been put forward, which we've discussed in previous podcasts. One of those was in cemeteries like this, to place headstones along the edge of the cemetery wall 
to commemorate the missing who were killed in the fields around it. Now, we'd struggle to identify men who were killed in these locations even today with all the records, the vast amount of records, particularly digitised ones that we've got available to us. So that task would have been impossible in the 1920s. So it was abandoned, that, that idea. Instead, people like Rudyard Kipling, who we'll speak about shortly, came up with this idea of memorials to the missing where panels would be placed on monuments to list the missing by name so that the families of those men who had disappeared and had no sepulchre on the battlefield, no grave to go and see, they would be able to come and touch a name on a wall and for them it would be what we would perhaps now call closure. That was the idea behind it. It seemed cruel that having a son who'd been killed and there was no trace of his grave to not commemorate him in any way like this would be an even crueler blow to the family's concern. So that's how these memorials came about. And we know of the great memorials like the Menin Gate at Ypres and the Tynecott Memorial and the Chapval Memorial on the Somme, but some of the smaller ones like Lou's often tend to be a bit neglected. And as we go forward with the podcast, we'll do more and more podcasts about some of these lesser-known memorials to the missing of the Great War. So what is the Lewes Memorial and who does it commemorate? Let's have some statistics about the memorial to the missing that we're looking at in this podcast. The Lewes Memorial was designed by Herbert Baker, one of the principal architects of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, and it was unveiled on the 4th of August 1930. Originally there were 20,712 names here. Now I say originally because, as with all of these memorials to the missing, from the time that the records were compiled to engrave the panels to the point at which the memorial was actually unveiled and put in place, in, in this case, could easily be a good decade between those two points. The battlefields were being continually cleared and men, the graves of men, the remains of men were found on these battlefields. So by the time monuments like this were unveiled, some of the men listed on the panels here actually already had a marked grave because their bodies had been found in the interim period. And there's a good example of this if you go to Cabaret Rouge Cemetery in northern France, close to the village of Souchet, not far from Vimy Ridge. That was a main concentration cemetery for that area of northern France. And there was quite a few Battle of Luz plots in there. And when you look at them, a large number of the graves of those men are men who were found in that 1920s period and who are also commemorated here on the panels of the Luz Memorial. Now, when you look them up now, their names are recorded in the Commonwealth War Graves Commission database in the cemetery where they're buried, Cabaret Rouge. But if you looked at some original copies of the Luz Memorial, they're also listed there. So, when I say 20,712 names, that's the figure given in the original register. Today, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website states that over 20,000 men are commemorated here. So that reflects the changing nature of commemorations at sites like this. And of course, it's something that didn't stop in that interwar period. It's something that continues today. In the years that I've been visiting these battlefields here at Lewes, soldiers, identified soldiers, have been found. So they're now buried in marked graves on the battlefield. Lewes British Cemetery is a good example of that. But their names are also commemorated here. This is not a memorial where they have removed any names as yet, but that could happen if and when any of the panels are replaced. 
Of those 20,712 names originally carved on the memorial panels of the Lewes Memorial, there were five regiments who had the highest proportion of names amongst them, a top five if you like, and they were all Scottish regiments. The Black Watch had 829 names on the memorial, the Cameron Highlanders 814, the Highland Light Infantry 697, the Gordon Highlanders 678, and the King's Own Scottish Borderers 671. So that's an incredible proportion of the 20,000 just with those five regiments. Why so many Scottish regiments represented there? Well, the Battle of Lewes in 1915 was very much a Scottish battle. The 9th Scottish Division took part in the operations. They were the very first Kitchener's Army New Army Division to be formed in 1914. They were part of what was called the first 100,000, the first 100,000 men to enlist in the New Army, Kitchener's Army. But also on the ground where we're standing now in the battlefields we can see in close proximity to the Lewes Memorial, the 15th Scottish Division fought here. So with two Scottish formations taking part in the initial assault, both of them suffering heavy casualties, it's not surprising really that we see so many Scottish regiments represented in those statistics showing just how many regiments suffered and how many men from those regiments were posted missing during the battle here in 1915. Now one of the things that I've got in front of me as I record this episode of the podcast is an original copy of the introduction to the Lewes Memorial. Now when all of these memorials were built there was a corresponding set of registers for them just like there are cemetery registers and the original memorial registers were published with brown covers to distinguish them from the grey covers of the registers for cemeteries. And for each memorial there was an introductory volume that gave the history of the battles that are covered by the names on the memorial, a map, some other information, and quite usefully a list of all of the regiments represented on the memorial and the number of commemorations that they have. So you can go through that list and, and pick out information along the lines of that that I've already outlined. So you can pick out a top five or certain units that you're interested in and see how many missing they had for that particular sector of the battlefields. These registers and the introductory registers were included in a little locker box somewhere on the cemetery or memorial site. So when you went into a cemetery, there was normally very close by the entrance gate a little bronze locker or, or a door, a bronze door, with cemetery register or memorial register engraved on it, and you open that up, and inside was... When I first went to the battlefield in the 1980s, they were in very stiff brown folders with the logo of the Imperial Wargraves Commission on the front and tacked inside them was the register. Up in the top right hand corner of the register box was a little fixture because originally they were on a little chain so they couldn't be removed and in the 80s there still were some registers that were chained into the box. None of those survive now because they're computer generated listings and they're regularly printed because they do suffer in the environment in which these cemeteries have to survive. So during the winter, it was very common that water could leak into the register box and damage the register. Now, when they were printed volumes, there was a cost element there because they had to keep replacing them. Now they can just go to the central office and have a new printout printed out and bound up and put in the register box. 
it doesn't take anything away from using these registers. It's just a different approach. But one thing that is missing from quite a lot of the modern registers is some of the detail that was in the originals. So I don't think that for the Lewes Memorial, or indeed any memorial, the introductory volume is there that lists, for example, all those regiments and how many names they have on the actual memorial. That information is only findable in original examples of the registers which turn up on places like eBay. Back in the 80s, again back in the 80s when I first used to go across to the battlefields, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission used to sell copies of the original registers for as little as 50 pence a volume. Um, and I was lucky that I bought quite a few and many others did besides. that They're getting a, a little bit costly to acquire these days. But um, Ancestry have scanned quite a few examples of cemetery registers, but I don't think they've scanned, for example, the introduction. So maybe that's a project for the old front line for our website further down the road. Who knows? Now, the original copy of the register that I've got in front of me was owned by a family whose son was commemorated on the Lewes Memorial. And tucked inside it is a little collection of paperwork. And if you hear some rustling paper like that... Um, it's me moving these sheets around so I can read bits of them to you. And it's quite interesting when we look at bits of ephemera like this that are tucked inside original registers because it gives us a bit of an insight into the wider history of the memorial. So this is a letter to the family in 1928. So this is a couple of years before the Lewes Memorial has been constructed. And it's from the Imperial Wargraves Commission, 82 Baker Street, London, W1. Sir or Madam... Will you be so good as to note that it has become necessary to change the site and name of the memorial which will record the name of the soldier whose memorial register from you completed some little time ago and whose particulars are shown on the attached slip proof? The memorial was originally intended to be sited at Bethune, but will now be erected at Dud Corner Cemetery, Lewes. It will be officially known as the Lewes Memorial, and the soldier's name referred to will be inscribed on it. Yours faithfully, Fabian Ware, Major General, Vice Chairman, Imperial Wargraves Commission. So what we see with a little note like that tucked in is the evolving nature of commemoration by the Imperial Wargraves Commission. A number of sites where memorials to the missing were planned, particularly in towns like Bethune or up in Lille, where the what became the Plugstert Memorial was eventually moved to Flanders from Lille, what you see is France being increasingly reluctant to have big memorials placed in central locations, particularly in urban areas. So in this case, the men killed on the battlefields where we're standing now were originally planned to be commemorated on the Bethune Memorial. Now that wasn't possible to erect a memorial of this size in the town of Bethune. So instead, it was moved here, which in many respects is a better location for it because it's right in the heart where the fighting took place, particularly in 1915. The other thing that's tucked inside the original copy of the register I've got in front of me is one half of what was called a final verification form. And this was a document, a two-sided document, uh, with a perforation down the middle, which you tore down to remove the bit that you submitted back to the Imperial Wargraves Commission, where the details of the soldier who would be inscribed, in this case, on the memorial were listed and you could correct those if they were incorrect and you could add details to them like age which was not listed like details of previous military service like the fact that it was one of several sons who had died in the war and also details um, of who you were 
because you were obviously applying on behalf of your late son or husband and you could put in there son of Mr and Mrs Smith of Hope Street, Manchester or husband of Mrs Brown of Eastbourne or Bognor Regis or whatever. And in this case, I don't have the section that required to be returned because this family returned it. But what's quite interesting when you look through memorials to the missing, like Lou's, you see that for many of the soldiers, there's no details whatsoever except their basic military details. Name, rank, number, units, date of death. And I think that with missing soldiers, because they were missing, even a decade or more after the end of the Great War, perhaps there was almost still that hope that one day they might return. And if you comply with the commission by filling in this form and returning it, are you having to admit that you know that they're never coming back? And maybe there was a greater reluctance on the part of the families of missing soldiers to send these forms back compared to the ones for men buried in cemeteries, because with a known grave, there's no disputing that he died. So this is all part of the fascinating history, really, of objects like this and what they tell us about the wider history of commemoration and the cemeteries and memorials of the Great War. So let's begin our walk now as we get down to the panels. We're going to start at panel one and work our way around the memorial. We're beginning our walk at panel number one of the Luz Memorial. All of these memorials to the missing have numbered panels so that you can easily locate a name on there. You can look the soldier up in the registers, see what regiment he was with, and then look up the panels that cover that particular regiment so you can quickly find his name. They're in the old army order of precedence, and back in the days when there were numbered regiments of foot, first regiment of foot was the Royal Scots, for example. That order of numbered regiments is the order of precedence, and that's how memorials like this are organised. So it's not an alphabetical listing of regimental names. And panel number one is commands and staff. So these are senior officers of the army. And when we look at these names of men under command and staff, one leaps out, and that's Major General George Hancock Thesiger. Thesiger was born in 1868, was educated at Eton and Sandhurst, a familiar route into the regular army long before the Great War. And he joined the Rifle Brigade as a young officer and served with them in Egypt and in the Battle of Omdurman, for example, and later in the Boer War, where he was badly wounded in the Battle of Wagon Hill in 1900. By 1914, he was in India and he returned to Britain on the outbreak of war and went across to France in December of 1914, where he was initially given command of a brigade, so commanding four infantry battalions, so about 4,500 men. He then came back to Britain, was given a divisional command, so now in charge of nearly 20,000 men, and then was sent across to France again, where on the 8th of September 1915, only a few weeks before the Battle of Lewes, he took command of the 9th Scottish Division. And on the first day of the Battle of Lewes, his men attacked the Hohenzollern Redoubt, this big German strongpoint close to the village of Oshilemines. And the units that went into the assault there got into the redoubt, but at great loss, in particular heavy losses amongst officers, particularly battalion commanders. So a large number of lieutenant colonels commanding these infantry battalions 
under his command had been killed or wounded. So he went forward with his own staff to try and ascertain what was happening, to try and direct the course of the battle when they came under shell fire and he and his staff were killed. Because of the nature of the fighting at the Hohenzollern Redoubts, having captured it in the early stage of the battle, the Germans eventually threw the British forces out of there and it meant that the bodies were never recovered. So Major General Thesiger became the most senior officer killed at Luz with no known grave. So when we stand and look at Thesiger's name on this memorial and we think of that concept which is not new to the modern generation that studies the Great War, there was an idea at the time, one of the Canadian veterans wrote a book called Generals Die in Bed and this idea that there were these chateau generals miles behind the lines with their feet up, drinking champagne, eating foie gras, while coldly reflecting upon the losses within their command. Thesiger and many others like him really challenged that idea, challenged that misconception of what senior officers did and had to do on battlefields like these. The Battle of Luz, as I mentioned, was a bit of a tipping point, and one of those tipping points in terms of command was the idea that men of this rank really shouldn't be on the battlefield that his job was to stand back and survey the battle from a distance, make decisions based on intelligence that was coming in, and then direct the course of the fighting from a building like a chateau or a large factory or whatever it was from somewhere away from the actual fighting. But of course, men like Thesiger, you know, having gone to public school, having gone into Sandhurst, as young officers, they were taught to lead by example. And that's something that was at the very core of who these men were. And they found it very, very difficult to just stand back and let the whole thing unravel. And they couldn't resist going into the action, going into battle like this, and often, like him, paid for it with their lives. So this whole concept of lions led by donkeys, uncaring generals, men never having any idea of what the fighting was like, Seeing a name like Thesiger's on a memorial to the missing like this challenges that, I think. Now, following the panels along, we get to the area where the Guards regiments are commemorated. The Guards division that brought together all of these Guards regiments, including the newly formed Welsh Guards, the Battle of Lewes was their first action on the Western Front. We also see the Irish Guards on here, and amongst it, Lieutenant J. Kipling. That's John Kipling, or Jack Kipling, he's often referred to. My boy Jack, as Kipling called him. The son of Rudyard Kipling, the great author and poet and writer of that period before the Great War. The young Kipling was killed at the Battle of Lewes, his first battle as a platoon commander. He was last seen somewhere on the slopes of Hill 70 as the units from the Guards Division attempted to capture that part of the German defences and his body was never found. Kipling spent a lot of time and a lot of money after the war trying to track down what had happened to his son. He agreed to write the regimental history of the Irish Guards, a two-volume set, which, for a man of that reputation, was quite unusual to step forward to volunteer to write a regimental history, but he did it so he had access to the Irish Guards' records to see if he could find any clue as to where his son had been killed, where he might be buried... He even had private detectives look into this. 
but nothing could be ascertained. And so John Kipling's name was added to the Lewes Memorial, being a missing officer of his regiment. When the monument was unveiled in the summer of 1930, Kipling paid for a local Frenchman to come up to the memorial every evening at dusk and to replicate what was by then already happening at the Menning Gate at Ypres, he got him to play the last post. So we tend to think the last post being sounded on a regular basis at a memorial is unique to Ypres, unique to the Menning Gate, but it happened here as well. From the period of the unveiling of the memorial in 1930, through to Kipling's death a few years later when it stopped. Back in the 1990s, a member of Commonwealth Wargraves Commission staff, Norm Christie, a Canadian, was researching Canadian officers who had died on this part of the Western Front and ascertained from their records that there was an unknown lieutenant of the Irish Guards buried in St Mary's ADS Cemetery on the Loos battlefield and submitted a case which was then accepted and there is a headstone in that cemetery now bearing Kipling's name. It's a fascinating story, John Kipling, and indeed Rudyard Kipling's involvement in the commemoration of the dead of the Great War, and one that really deserves its own podcast, and it's something that I'll return to. But when we stand here and we look at Kipling's name, we see really that the whole story of the Great War isn't over, will never be over, because the ongoing debate as to what happened to John Kipling, whether that headstone is him, continues to this day. Further along this stretch of the wall we come to the Suffolk Regiment panels and as we look to where the officers names are listed we see Charles Hamilton Sawley. He's one of the lesser known war poets. Some of his work appears in anthologies of great war poetry. Born in Aberdeen in 1895 he won a scholarship to University College Oxford before the Great War and in 1914 when the war broke out he was in Germany and was interned briefly at Trier before being released and coming back home where he enlisted as an officer in the 7th Battalion of the Suffolk Regiment, part of the 12th Eastern Division. He came across to France with them in May of 1915 and served in the sector around Armentier and Fleur Bay and then came down to take part in the Battle of Luz where he was killed in action, allegedly shot by a sniper on the 13th of October 1915. Why does he have no known grave when we know the circumstances of his death and he was an officer? Well, again, like so many in that battle, they were killed and their bodies were unrecoverable or they were buried in battlefield burial sites, shell holes or field graves that were subsequently destroyed by later shell fire. Because although, as we mentioned, the Battle of Luz was short-lived, there was another three years of the war to go after that and continuous bombardments of this ground throughout that period. So many graves that had not been properly registered or recorded were subsequently lost. And when the battlefields were cleared, remains were found, like that grave we spoke about of the unknown lieutenant, the Irish Guards, that may or may not be Kipling. When they were found, there was nothing on them to really confirm whose body that was. So Sawley is commemorated here. I mentioned that he was one of the minor war poets. Like many of those poets in the early period of the war, they followed really that approach of Rupert Brooke discussing how glorious and wonderful it was to fight and die for your country. Rupert Brooke died from a mosquito bite on the way to Gallipoli. He'd served very briefly at Antwerp, but not in any kind of major battle. And one wonders with Brooke, you know, if he'd have gone on to serve in Gallipoli, survive Gallipoli and had written about it, how would his war poetry have changed? 
with Charles Hamilton sorely, we do see a change. We see his experience of warfare, static trench warfare, in the approaches to the Battle of Luz reflect the change that he had in viewing the war. And that is then reflected in his poetry. So he's probably his best-known poem is this one. Charles Hamilton Sawley, When You See Millions of the Mouthless Dead When you see millions of the mouthless dead Across your dreams in pale battalions go Say not soft things as other men have said That you'll remember, for you need not so Give them not praise, for deaf How should they know it is not curses Heaped upon each gashed head, nor tears their blind eyes see not your tears flow, nor honour, it is easy to be dead. Say only this, they are dead, then add thereto, yet many a better one has died before. Then scanning all the o'ercrowded mass, should you perceive one face that you loved heretofore, it is a spook. None wears the face you knew. Great death has made all his for evermore. And a poem like that could not have been written without frontline experience, without seeing the realities of the battlefield. And when you stand here and you look at Sawley's name, you begin to wonder what great literature would he have produced, what great poetry would have flowed from his pen if he had survived the Battle of Luz. Would this be a name that we know as much as Sassoon and Graves and Owen? We can only but speculate. Another one of these young lives unfulfilled in so many ways. Continuing round to the back section of the memorial, we get to the Black Watch panels, and there we find Captain the Honourable Fergus Bowes Lyon. He was the late Queen Mother's favourite brother. She always said that when she stood near the cenotaph or at any remembrance ceremony, it was her brother Fergus that she always thought of. And she started that tradition with the tomb of the unknown warrior by placing her wedding bouquet on that tomb. And she did it in memory of all of those missing in the Great War, of course, but in particular for her brother Fergus, whose name is listed here. He was killed with the 8th Battalion, the Black Watch, in the fighting for the Hohenzollern Redoubt, on the 27th of September 1915, aged 26. And as we mentioned with the story of John Kipling, the Great War, the story of the Great War still evolves, because in 2011, his grandson stepped forward with new evidence to show that he had once been buried in Quarry Cemetery, very close to the site where the Redoubts was located. And this evidence was accepted by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and a new headstone with Fergus Bowes Lyon's details on it was added to a plot in Quarry Cemetery with buried near this spot engraved on the top of it. So we see again how new evidence, new information comes forward and the whole commemoration, the history of the commemoration of the dead continues to evolve. The story of his burial though was something that was reported at the time. His Batman was a soldier called Alfred Anderson and incredibly, Alfred Anderson was still alive in 2003 at the age of 107. I remember reading accounts of him at the time being Scotland's oldest man, and he spoke about how he had buried his officer in a cemetery close to the battlefield and sent the family a little sketch 
showing what the grave looked like. And I guess it was that information that was part of what was submitted to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to get them to change the details and add that headstone in Quarry Cemetery. And I'll put a picture of the headstone up so you can see what it looks like on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk. We'll continue now into one of the little bays, if you like, of the memorial. There's two circular-shaped sections at the back of the memorial where the panels curve. And there's one that I always go to because in there are the men from the Royal Sussex Regiment. And that's what we'll look at in our final bit of this podcast. If you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you'll know that I was born in Sussex and I grew up in Sussex. It's a place just like the Somme and the landscapes of both those places, the Somme and Sussex, are very, very similar. But it's a place that I have a great attachment to and its connection to the history of the Great War is one that has occupied me over many, many decades So as I come to this little alcove here on the Lewes Memorial to the Missing, I find the panels of the Royal Sussex Regiment, over 500 names of Sussex lads who were killed on the battlefields of Lewes in September and October of 1915. There are men from the 2nd Battalion Royal Sussex Regulars who'd been out since the very beginning of the war in August 1914 who were killed on the first day of the battle on the 25th of September and others killed right at the end in October. There are men from the 9th Battalion, one of the Kitchener's Army, the New Army Battalions of the Regiment, who were killed in the fighting at Foss 8 near Oshie-le-Means on the other side of the Hohenzollern Redoubt, having passed through what was left of Major General Thesiger's uh, 9th Scottish Division. The 9th Royal Sussex dug in there and held the ground against all comers until they were relieved, and over a 100 of their men whose bodies were never found, never recovered from that battlefield at Foss 8, are commemorated here. But it's more than just the regimental history, though. It's when I look at the names on here, it it reads like an A to Z of Sussex surnames. Having visited so many villages and towns across Sussex in my research into the war memorials there and the stories of Sussex men who were killed, you recognise names, you come to see names that become familiar to you. And as I scan down the list of names here, I see so many stories, starting with the officers. Captain Humblecrofts, who was a a company commander in the South Downs Battalions, killed in the attack at Rishborg that fateful day of the 30th of June 1916, the attack on the Boar's Head. And amongst those more than 360 Sussex lads who fell at Rishborg on the 30th of June, over 180 of them are commemorated here, so nearly half of them. And beyond names like Cyril Humblecroft, who I've mentioned, that company commander last seen hanging on the German wire in front of the Boar's Head. He was from Waldron in Sussex and educated at Eastbourne College. There are so many stories of these Sussex worthies. Second Lieutenant Aylett Cameron Cushion, a tailor's son from Hastings in Sussex. He'd originally served as an ordinary soldier in the Honourable Artillery Company. He probably has one of the shortest periods of service as an officer in the whole of the British Army in the Great War. There's an excellent book by John Lewis Stimple called Six Weeks, which is the average life expectancy of officers in the Great War on the Western Front. Aylett Cameron Cushion was commissioned on the 19th of June 1916 and killed in action at Rishborg on the 30th. He was an officer for 11 days before he was killed 
leading his platoon into action at Rishborg on that fateful morning. Serving alongside him and also named on the memorial here was 2nd Lieutenant Francis Grisewood from Bogner. His brother was the commanding officer of his battalion, the 11th Royal Sussex, the 1st South Downs, and Colonel Grisewood had refused to take his battalion into action when he was shown the plan for the assault on the Boar's Head because, according to one of the veterans that I interviewed back in the 1980s, he stated to his brigadier and his divisional commander that he wasn't prepared to sacrifice his battalion as cannon fodder. He was relieved of his command and had to sit back and watch the show go in. And amongst the men who went forward that morning was his brother who was killed and his body never found. Colonel Harmon Griswold really lived in the shadow of that decision, in the shadow of all those losses and in the shadow of the loss of his own brother. And I think of that story and I think of that moment every time I come here and see Griswold's name. I spent a few years in Bogner and the family, the Griswold family, lived in a street called The Den. They had a house there and I lived in The Den for about six months. So I walked in and around their world and it's how, I suppose, all these connections that we have here in Britain, how they extend across to the Western Front, how we weave our way through the histories of so many men and indeed women like this. But it's not just the officers that are listed here. Ernest George Funnell was a private soldier in the South Downs Battalions, also killed at Rishborg. I have his memorial plaque. It's blackened and it's twisted and it's warped because he lived in Eastbourne. He came from Eastbourne and the street that he lived in in central Eastbourne was bombed in the Eastbourne Blitz in the Second World War. And this plaque was almost certainly in there when that bombing took place. The house was completely destroyed. Was it the only fragment of his sacrifice that his parents managed to rescue from their house? Again, it's it's one of those objects that connects us not just to the events here on the Western Front, but the wider history of the 20th century. An object created by one world war, damaged and almost destroyed in another. And in the rural communities of Sussex, there were many big families that contributed to the raising of these Kitchener's battalions including those South Downs battalions, which, when they were formed in 1914, the 11th, 12th and 13th Royal Sussex, the 1st, 2nd and 3rd South Downs, they represented the whole county in a way that no previous battalion in the regiment had ever done. And those losses at Rishborg alone on the 30th of June 1916 affected 77 towns and villages in Sussex. When you add the wounded into that calculation, there cannot have been a single Sussex community not affected by the boar's head. So there are many pairs of brothers here and some brothers whose brothers were killed the same day as them who were buried elsewhere. The Blaker brothers whose medals that I have from Worthing, one is commemorated on the memorial here, another one buried at St Vars Post Cemetery close to the battlefield at Rishborg. And when you scan down the list of names, you see surnames repeated twice. And then when you get to P, you find one repeated three times. The Panel brothers, also from Worthing, There were four brothers in the South Downs battalions and on the 30th of June 1916 three of them were killed in action, their bodies never recovered and commemorated here and one taken prisoner who spent the rest of the war as a prisoner of war in Germany. What a devastating blow that that moment must have been to their parents back home in Worthing when they received that telegram that three sons had died, one still survived but he was a prisoner of war. We can only but imagine how they felt and what that did to the family.
So when I stand here and I look at these names, I can understand to a degree how Siegfried Sassoon described these men as nameless names. It's easy to be swept away by these lists. It's easy just to see long, long lines of names disappearing into infinity and forget that each one represented a life. It represented people that loved them and people that they loved left behind to live forever with the legacy of their loss and with missing soldiers, as we've spoken about many times on this podcast, how much worse was that with nothing to see except this name on a wall and hope beyond hope that somehow they'd survive, somehow they would come back. And a dozen years after the end of the Great War with the construction of the Luz Memorial, these Sussex lads listed here and all the thousands of others that are listed on the walls around where we're standing now, for their families, it was journey's end. They were never coming home. They were never returning from the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>